We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Good morning. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving and you got to spend some time with friends or family. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Patrick and I'm one of the pastors here. If you haven't yet, please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump right into it. Father, we are so thankful that you have allowed us to gather here to worship your name and that you welcome us before your throne that you welcome us because of the blood of Jesus Christ and that he is now currently interceding for us at the right hand of the Father and he fully accepts us because of what Christ has done. And so we come before your throne with confidence and we ask now as we open your word that you would speak to us, that you would continue to speak to us. We recognize, Father, we might come in here tired, weary from this week, but we ask that you would continue to give us new life through your word. Father, we pray if there are any that here that do not know Christ, that they would hear the gospel message and they would see it as beautiful and worth following. Father, we pray as we open your scriptures that I would be faithful to your word, that I would preach what you have for us here. We thank you that your spirit indwells us and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien is famous for creating and introducing to us the land of Middle-earth. The Hobbit is the first book in this series. Well, there's actually a series, a trilogy, but The Hobbit kind of introduces us to this world, which has elves and orcs and wizards. And what many people don't remember or don't know is that there's a subtitle to this book that's often left off on the cover of the book. And so I've already shown my nerd card by talking about The Hobbit. Does anyone know the subtitle, the original subtitle of The Hobbit? Yes, go ahead. They're back, there and back again. We do have someone who knows the subtitle. The subtitle to The Hobbit is actually There and Back Again. Well, as you know, Peter Jackson, who's a, a movie maker, decided to make movies of this Middle Earth world. And he decided to overstuff The Hobbit like a Thanksgiving turkey and break up this one novel into three, three-plus-hour movies. Okay, so he threw a bunch of stuff into these movies. Well, in the midst of making three movies about this one novel, he had to think of subtitles for every single movie, right? So you have to think of maybe a new sub- subtitle. He doesn't want to call it The Hobbit, The Hobbit, The Hobbit, The Hobbit. He's like, let me, let me think of subtitles for these movies. So the first one was actually, I think, a really good subtitle, even though I didn't love the movies. The first one was a really good subtitle. It was called The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. If you actually read the books, he took that from the first chapter, which is called An Unexpected Party. An Unexpected Party. And so he called that first movie, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. And the subtitle actually fits pretty well for the story as a whole. Unexpected guests, if you know this story, arrive at this little hobbit's door. He unexpectedly decides to join these dwarves and this wizard on a perilous journey through Middle-earth. And along the way, he meets many unexpected guests, trolls, elves. He even finds the most powerful ring in all of Middle-earth. It truly is 
an unexpected journey. This subtitle, An Unexpected Journey, actually fits well for this last half or really the last chapters of Acts. Jesus has promised that he will bring Paul to Rome in Acts 23, verse 11. He said, hey, you're going to Rome. And guess what? We come to chapter 28, and he's still not in Rome. (laughs) So it's been five chapters since Jesus promised that Paul would go to Rome. And even more than that, if you back up to Acts 9, where Jesus promised you're going to witness before kings, before Gentiles, and we're still not in Rome. It's been really an unexpected journey for Paul. The last few weeks, Paul has spent his time on trial and in prison. And then two weeks ago, Tyler preached on this long sea journey where there's there's this shipwreck. And so the story really has slowed down a lot as Paul makes his unexpected journey to Rome. And really, this theme of an unexpected journey also fits well for this final chapter of Acts. I don't know if you knew this, but this is our final sermon on the book of Acts. We began on January 9th. I actually preached a sermon to introduce all of Acts on January 9th. That's like 11 months ago. We were thinking about Acts, and now we finally come to a close. You can clap later or rejoice on your own. And as a side note, I just want to say this as we get into this. You might think that subtitle also fits well for your Christian life, an unexpected journey. Maybe you feel like you have an unexpected relationship with the Lord that goes up and down. Maybe you have an unexpected marriage that you're in or unexpected changes in your family or in your church or in your career. Or you can think about the unexpected kindness of the Savior to you. Acts reminds us that God loves to work in unexpected ways. He loves to work in unexpected ways. So to conclude our last chapter of Acts, we won't be able to talk about everything in these chapters. There's a lot of really exciting things that happen, and I'd love to talk about all of them. But we're going to look at the three scenes, and I'm just going to give you kind of a broad brush of what's happening here. And so the three kind of ways that it breaks down is first... In the first 10 verses, we can see hospitality to the word. In the second section, 11 through 28, we see hostility to the word. And then in the final two verses, we see the triumphant word. Let me just say that again if you take notes. First, we see hospitality to the word. Second, we see hostility to the word. And then finally, we see the triumphant word as it goes forth. So in the first 10 verses we see this surprising, this kind of unexpected hospitality or openness to the word on Malta, an island. Let's look at verse 1. It says, after we were brought safely through, and what is he speaking of? Well, it's just after the shipwreck and the storm. Paul has gone through the shipwreck, and and the boat has broken apart on on the shore, and they've had to actually swim to this island. So after they've been brought safely through the shipwreck and the storm, God has brought them here. We learned that the island that they landed on was called Malta. So after this shipwreck, Paul and his companions find themselves safely ashore on this island called Malta. However, if you know anything about island stories, you know this might not go well for them. 
This might not go well for them. Landing on an unknown island is full of danger. What will greet them on this unknown island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea? Will cannibals, slaves, bandits, barbarians be waiting for them? Who knows? And we actually still have this narrative kind of plot line in our own culture, right? So think of the TV show Lost, right? You land on this island and you don't know what's there. Or Gilligan's Island or Lord of the Flies. What's going to happen on this island when they land there? So just picture this story with me. Paul is, is in prison. He's on trial. Then he goes through the shipwreck. And then now you're like, oh, finally, he's safe. Then he lands on the island. And you're like, oh, what's going to happen? So the tension is high, but immediately Luke surprises us. Something unexpected happens. Look at verse 2. It says, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and they welcomed us all. Big sigh of relief, right? Oh, we don't know who's going to be here. Really kind people. It's raining. They kindle a fire and they welcome us all and say, come on, you guys are all wet. You're probably freezing right? You've just been in a shipwreck, and you need to get warm, or you're going to get sick. They're met with this kindness, this hospitality, and the translation here actually hides something, because it actually says the native people can be translated the barbarians. The barbarians showed us philanthropy, love of humanity. They showed us unusual kindness. Now, by barbarians, he doesn't mean what we usually think when we hear barbarians. Barbarians are simply people who don't know Greek. They don't know the Greek language, and they don't know the Greek culture. And so they live on this island, and they're separated from kind of Greek culture, and they're known as barbarians who are uncivilized people. That's how they're viewed, at least. They don't know our culture. They don't know our language. They are barbarians. So these barbarians show them philanthropy, hospitality, kindness. Then, after this, an exciting scene occurs. I don't know if you've ever read this story before, but in verses 3 through 6, Paul is sitting by the fire, and a viper comes out, and it fastens onto his hand. And the native people here think it's a symbol. They initially suppose Paul is guilty. They think, oh, well, the sea didn't kill this man. Now God, or the gods, are judging him by having this viper come out and bite his hand. And so they think, oh, justice has caught up to him. This man is a prisoner. He has certainly done something wrong. But what happens? Paul shakes off the snake into the fire, and they wait, and they look at him, and they're like, okay, when is this guy going to die? He's going to puff up and fall over. Nothing happens to Paul. He sits there, and everything is fine. And then they say, Oh, maybe he is a god. Notice how quickly their opinion has shifted of him. In one second, he's a murderer. In the next second, he's a god. Public opinion is quite fickle towards Paul. It's an odd scene. What do we do with this? Many, and I'd say many people who actually study Acts, take this part of the scene and view these barbarians as superstitious. These are very superstitious people. As the typical sermon goes, while the barbarians show Paul kindness, many people are kind. And kindness doesn't mean that you actually accept the gospel. There are confused people, these barbarians, these native people, those on the island of Malta, to think that Paul is a god 
is that something that Luke would critique like he did in Acts 14 in Lystra when they call Paul a god, and he says, no, we are not gods. So many conclude this is a negative scene. So I'm going to put on my teacher's hat for a minute. I take this as a positive scene, and I'm going to give you a lot of reasons why. So just teacher's hat for just a moment. I take this as a very positive scene. So let me give you some reasons why I think their reception of Paul in this great hospitality is actually showing they're receptive to the word of God. First, because the text is framed with their kindness to Paul and his companions. We saw their kindness to Paul in verse 2, and then jump down to verse 7, where it says, the chief man of the island received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So the text begins and the text ends with their hospitality to him. And then look at verse 10. Luke says, they honored us greatly. When we were about to sail, they put us on board and gave us whatever we needed. So how does Luke want us to think of this scene? I think he wants to think of this scene positively. They welcomed us. And even at the end, they welcome us. You have this weird scene in the middle. But there's great hospitality to Paul and his companions. Now, this, this brings us to the second point. Why is that such a big deal? Why is that such a big deal? Because remember what Jesus said about welcoming and showing hospitality to God's messengers in the Gospels. What does he say? He says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy. He's speaking to the disciples in Matthew 10. Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet. Here's the main point. Jesus says, how they receive you is how they receive me. How they receive you is an indication of how they are going to receive the gospel. So these barbarians welcome Paul and his companions, and I think it's an indication that they are open to the gospel message. Remember in Acts 9, Jesus says to Paul, you persecuted me, and in persecuting, or you persecuted the church, and in persecuting the church, you persecuted me. So just as you welcome me, my, the messengers, you welcome Jesus Christ himself. Third, third reason why I think this is a positive scene. Verse 8 says that Paul ends up visiting the chief man of the island, and when his father is sick, he heals him. Now that might not seem like a big deal. Later on in verse 9, it says he heals many people of the island. But in Luke, think about this. In Luke, when Paul heals someone, this usually indicates both physical and spiritual salvation. When Paul heals someone, this usually indicates both spiritual and physical salvation. So we don't have, admittedly, we don't have a gospel message being shared here explicitly that Luke tells us about. But we have Paul healing people which I think indicates he's bringing the gospel to them. This is what Paul always does. Wherever he lands, wherever he is, he brings the gospel. So fourth, Paul even says in Romans 1.14 that he is under obligation to preach. Think about this. Remember, they're called barbarians. Who is he obligated to preach to in Romans 1.14? Both to Greeks and to barbarians. He's writing to Rome, and he's thinking about his journey, and he's like, I'm, I'm obligated to preach both to Greeks and to barbarians. Then in Colossians 3, he says, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all in all. 
So Paul's thinking about his missionary journeys here as he's writing these letters, and he thinks, I brought the gospel to Greeks, and I brought the gospel to barbarians on the island of Malta. So I think that's further confirmation that this is a positive scene. Okay, but what are we supposed to do with this scene where they call him a god? First they call him a murderer, and then they call him a god. That does seem somewhat negative. Like, how are we to understand that? Well, I think the barbarians are actually the native people, those on Malta, are actually more in tune with what God is doing than many around them. Why do I say that? Because in one sense, Paul is a murderer. Remember in Acts 7, he stood by while Stephen was murdered. And so they look at him and they say, oh, this guy's a murderer. But then they say, oh, justice maybe has caught up to him. But I think what they're not understanding is justice has caught up to him. Justice and righteousness in the form of Jesus Christ. And they say, oh, he's a God. Well, he's not a God, but he is the representative of God because he has the spirit living inside of him. So I don't think they're fully superstitious. I think they understand that God is speaking through the storm. And God is speaking through the safety of Paul landing on their island. And God is speaking through this viper coming and biting Paul. So these people, these these island dwellers, these barbarians, they welcome Paul and the other companions. They're hospitable to the word. I think all indications in the text are that the most unexpected people, these barbarians, welcome the message of Paul by welcoming Paul himself. They are hospitable to the gospel message. So that's the first point. Second, we see also hostility to the word in 11 through 28. We don't only see this, we see a lot more. So let me point out a few other things. Towards the end of the text, we see hostility to the word. But there are a lot of other subpoints that come before that. So let me just point out two before we get there. Before we see hostility to the word, Two more surprising things happen. Verse 11 through 14 detail another small voyage that Paul must take to get to Rome. But at the end of verse 14, Luke has this climactic climactic understatement. He says, and so we came to Rome. Like we've been waiting this whole book for Paul to get to Rome. And he says, and so we came to Rome. And so we arrived. He doesn't notice how Paul comes. He doesn't come as a conquering warrior with his ESV study Bible in hand. He comes in humility. He comes in chains. This is how Jesus came to his city as well. And this is how the gospel comes to Rome in humility. He is not the conqueror. He is the conquered. He is not an empire builder. He's a man of weakness. He comes, as Paul will later say in one of his letters, in a triumphal procession, smelling of death. He's in chains. He comes to Rome in chains. And maybe, just pause, maybe we can learn something from Paul here in terms of how to bring the gospel to others. So many times we might tend to come with pride or arrogance, but Paul comes in absolute weakness. And so we came, come to Rome. We come to the Roman Empire the world power of the time. And how does the gospel come? In chains, with Paul. The second surprising thing is also found in verse 14. At the beginning of verse 14, notice what it says here. I think we read over this really quickly. 
When he comes to Rome, he says, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Did you hear what he just said? What did he find there? Brothers. Brothers and sisters are there. Like, who are these brothers and sisters? Christians. There's Christians. Do you see what I'm saying? There's Christians already in Rome. Wait, I thought Paul was going to Rome to spread the gospel. Yes, he is. But guess what's happened? Luke gives little indications that the gospel work has outpaced Paul. This book isn't about Paul primarily spreading the gospel. It's about the spread of the word that goes beyond Paul. Do you see what Luke kind of indicates? He, Paul comes in thinking, or, or we might think that Paul comes in saying, I'm going to bring the gospel to Rome. Look at me. I'm so important. And God's like, yeah, the gospel's already here. I still want you to go. I still want you to go. But there's already Christians here. Brothers and sisters welcome him. They say, yep, come on in. We've already got a small group going. And yeah, keep, keep spreading this message. And I think, I think we can step back again. And a lot of times we can think, oh, we're going to do this work for God. <laughs> and many times God's work is outpacing us. Many times God's work is way out in front of us. And we need to recognize with humility, God is using us as servants. But God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us in his mission. He uses us in his mission. Finally then, Paul enters Rome and calls people to him so he can share the good news. Verses 17 through 20 says, Paul calls together the local leaders of the Jews and explains why he is there, basically giving a summary of what we already know from the past few chapters. Paul says, I'm innocent, but I had to appeal to Caesar. But I wear these chains because of the hope of Israel, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. So this is why I'm here. I'm here because I appealed to Caesar. In verses 21 through 22, we hear the people's response to Paul. They want to hear what Paul's views are. And so verse 23 says, from morning till evening, Paul was very long-winded, right? From morning till evening, what does he do? Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. He shares the gospel message with them from morning to evening. He opens the Old Testament scriptures and he says, this Jesus is the Messiah. You must believe. Jews who have followed the Jewish tradition all your life, this is what you've been waiting for. I'm here to bring you this message that the Messiah has come and he has died on the cross, just like Isaiah predicted, that he would be the suffering servant. And what's the response? What's the response? Verse 24 says, some were convinced. <laughs> yes, some were convinced. Some Jews hear it and they say, yes, I want a part of this. I know that he's the Messiah. But others didn't believe. But others didn't believe. And this second part, those who didn't believe, seems to be where Luke rests his attention. Hostility to the word. For Paul goes on to quote from Isaiah, lamenting their response. Paul's final statement, the quote from Isaiah says this. Go to this people and say, this is starting in 28, 26. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand in their heart and turn. And I would heal them. So Paul says, therefore, 
let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Man, it's a sad ending, isn't it? This is not the final verses of Acts, but it's, it's kind of the last point where Paul shares the gospel here. And what happens? Many people disbelieve. Some Jews believe, some don't. And Paul pulls out Isaiah 6 and he says, this is what Isaiah said would happen. That your ears would be stopped and your eyes would be closed. And as you hear this message, you would not understand. Don't you wish it would have ended like Pentecost? 3,000 are saved, yes! And the gospel goes forth. No, Acts ends in kind of a strange, unexpected way. The barbarians, <laughs> the uncivilized, those on the island welcome the word. And the Jews in Rome, many of them disbelieve. Many of them don't believe. So it kind of ends on this sour note, like, what, what, what does this mean? And Paul says, well, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, and they're going to listen. So we have two kind of paired scenes here. You see them? Hospitality to the word, and then hostility to the word. So I just want to step back and press into three things that this means for us before we get to the final two verses, as a church and as individuals. So first thing that this means for us. First this text reminds us that no one is outside of the reach of our kind Savior. No one is outside of the reach of our kind Savior. God sovereignly sends Paul to this island with barbarians on his way to Rome to show them the kindness of the Savior. He heals them. No matter what you think about that text, Paul shows kindness to them in the midst of their kindness to him as well. Many people on this island end up getting healed. And as Josh mentioned last week, Jesus loves to reach out to the unexpected. Maybe you, you are here and you feel like you are that unexpected one. Maybe you feel like, I'm too messy for this Messiah. That he couldn't love you because of what you've done or how you've been raised or how you've turned your back on him. Do you find yourself shrinking back from his love because you feel unworthy? Well, you know what this text reminds us? God pursues us. God pursued these people on the island of Malta through Paul, through the shipwreck, and he says, go to these people. I want them to hear the gospel as well. Throughout Acts, Jesus continually surprises us, and God especially reaches out to those who feel their inadequacy. But those who are too proud, they shut their eyes and they shut their ears. Isn't that how the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, puts it? What does it say? All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. What does Jesus require of you? Just to feel need. That's it. That's all he requires of you, that you must feel your need of him. It says, come you needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus stands ready to save you. All you need to come to Jesus is to feel needy, and he welcomes you. The Messiah came for the messy. He came for the least expected. He opens his arms to those on the margins, and he says, come to me, come to me. You who dwell on these islands, you uncivilized barbarians, come. And they welcome the word. They welcome the word. 
But second, this big-heartedness of God is also a challenge to us because it causes us to ask, how are we as a church or as individuals limiting God's mission? How are we as a church or individuals limiting God's mission? Have we been so lulled to sleep that we don't expect him to do the unexpected anymore? That person won't listen. They're not, they're not the type. They might not look like us. They might not dress like us. They might not have the same culture as us. So they, they probably wouldn't be interested in this message. You've got to think Paul arrives on Malta, and he might have some of those thoughts run through his head. These are uncivilized people. They don't know Greek. They don't do things like us. They might have a different access to us, accent than us. They might do things very differently than us. But he brings the gospel to them. In our text, it is the barbarians who are hospitable to this word. To put this in modern terms, it would be like if Jesus came back today, and all the people that we think who have it backwards, who don't quite align with us, who don't quite do things like us, who don't quite speak like us, welcome him. And the ones that we expect to welcome the Savior are like, I don't want anything to do with that guy. You would expect, right, the Jews in Rome, the ones who have been prepared their whole life for the Messiah to be like, yes, here's the message we've been waiting for. And they're like, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with a crucified Savior. And these people who, in one sense, have not been prepared for this message, who say, I want to welcome this. I want to welcome this messenger. Willie Jennings, an African-American professor at Duke, tells the story of growing up in Grand Rapids. One time, two white men came to their house while he and his mom were outside. The white men introduced themselves as two people from First Christian Reformed Church just down the street. They had just planted the church. They were starting a new ministry. They began speaking about their church, the activities they had for their kids, what they were hoping to do in this neighborhood. And they talked for a long time, Willie says, like they were rehearsing a speech. And Willie's mom sat there and she listened. Jennings remembers this, the strangeness of the scene because he didn't usually have two white men in his backyard. And secondly, he thought this was a strange scene because of the obliviousness of the men because they didn't know who they were addressing. They didn't know who they were speaking to. They were, they were talking to his mom, Mary Jennings, one of the pillars of the New Hope Missionary Baptist Church, also just down the street. They never once asked if she went to church or if she believed in God. She was at New Hope every week. Not only that, she organized activities at the church. And every Sunday, if somebody didn't come to church, she would go and visit them. If they were shut-ins or sick, she's like, here, let me bring you something. After a long time, Willie's mother finally interrupted and said, I'm already a Christian, and I attend New Hope Missionary Baptist Church, also just down the street. This event stuck out to Jennings, and he wondered why these newcomers didn't already know the Christians who filled the neighborhood. He doesn't attribute the lack of knowledge to the logistics of their missional operations or even have contempt for them. He wasn't angry at them. But he does point out their lack of imagination. Their lack of imagination. They had a distorted Christian imagination and couldn't foresee that there was already work being done on the ground where they were trying to lay a new foundation. 
And, and we, I tell this story because we have to ask ourselves, if we have a distorted Christian imagination for what God is doing. Maybe we've overlooked the places where God might work because we assume that can't be the place. Luke challenges our imagination for what God's mission might look like. The barbarians show hospitality, and Christians already exist in Rome. And the Jews, Paul's own people, show hostility to this message. Third and final point of application for us. This text reminds us of a hard truth. Our message will be divisive. Our message will be divisive. The gospel message is divisive by its nature. Some will accept the word. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We've seen people throughout Acts be saved. But the end of Acts also says people will hate it. People will reject it. While the barbarians welcome it, the Jews say, we don't want anything to do with this Messiah. We reject that message. Jesus in Matthew 10 says he came not to bring peace, but the sword. Not probably the most beloved verse of Jesus' own sayings, right? He didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring the sword. Men will be set against their fathers and daughters against their mothers, and a person's enemies will be in their own households. Maybe some of you have experienced this personally, that you have been estranged from family members because you have accepted this gospel message and those around you hate it. They want nothing to do with it. Paul says to some, the message of Jesus' love is wisdom. But to others, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. And they will hate it. So don't be surprised, don't be surprised when people spurn this message that you share. And when we read this text, especially Paul's quote from Isaiah, he might sound, it might sound a little hard-hearted, like some of the lines from Isaiah. We might think our response should be, I knew you wouldn't accept it, your hearts are dull, you can't hear, you can't see. This is what the Bible told me. So you then kind of just walk off and you're cold about it. But I don't think that's how we should read this text. I don't think that's how we should read Paul's response. And, and, and why do I say that? Because of what Paul says in Romans 9. I think the tone of Paul's language here to the Jews in Rome about them not seeing and them not hearing is a lover's lament. What does he say in Romans 9? He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for, from Christ for the sake of who? My brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's not cold about this. He has sorrow in his heart because many of the Jews in Rome do not accept this message. And he says in Romans, I wish I was not with Christ so that you could be with Christ. I care for you so much. So listen to me. Paul can balance three things that we need to balance as well. First, people will reject the message. It's inevitable. The message will be divisive. But second, we never respond with indifference. We never respond with indifference. We respond with anguish and love and sorrow, all the while knowing that God is sovereign and they are responsible for their actions. 
Finally, also there is a time even in the midst of our sorrow to move this message to a more receptive field. Notice what Paul says. He goes, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. They're, they're going to listen. There's a time to move on and say, you won't listen, so I've got to go somewhere else. This whole section could be its own sermon, but I don't have time. Emmaus, division will come, but your response is to lament and to be wise with your time and resources and bring it to those who will listen. Okay, in conclusion, the last two verses of Acts remind us the word will be triumphant. Remember, there's hospitality to the word and there's hostility to the word. But the last two verses says, either way, it's going out. Either way, it's going out. God's word will not fail. Verses 30 through 31. Notice what, how Luke ends this book. Paul lived there in the house prison for two whole years at his own expense. He had to pay for it. <laughs> he had to pay to live there. And he welcomed all who came to him. People were coming to him. Let me hear about this message. And what did he do? He proclaimed the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's a really an unexpected way to end. Note what Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't ever tell us if Paul met with Caesar. I thought that's what we were waiting for. I thought he's going to be with Caesar. And Luke's like, yeah, I'm not going to tell you about that. He doesn't tell us if Paul ever got out of prison. Paul's just stuck in prison at the end for two whole years in this house prison. He doesn't even tell us at the very end the response. What does he do? He proclaims the kingdom of God with all boldness without hindrance. And what did they do? I don't know. We don't know how they responded. It doesn't tell us. None of these are the main points of Acts. The point is, Paul is able to proclaim the kingdom of God with all boldness and without hindrance, even in prison. The word continues to go forth. The Roman Empire couldn't stop the gospel from going forth. The Jewish nation couldn't stop the gospel from going forth. Even the prison bars couldn't stop the gospel from going forth. The shackles on his feet couldn't stop the gospel from going forth. When Paul is locked up, the message is unbound. The message is unbound and triumphant. It keeps going forward. No restraints are put on the message of Jesus, even though Paul is locked up. And this last word is for encouragement. While this last chapter shows us some will receive our message and some won't, it also reminds us God's mission can't be stopped. It's not based on your circumstances. Paul's left in prison, but Luke says it went forth. People heard the message. Even when Paul is in the hands of his enemies, he's ultimately in what? The hands of his father. He's in the hands of his father. Emmaus, this whole series has been called a community on mission. But remember, it's first God's mission. It's first God's mission, and he will make sure that it goes forth. And you know what? God's mission will probably be for all of us an unexpected journey, an unexpected journey. It won't go like we imagine. We have visions for how the mission of God will go forth through this church or through us as individuals. And God says, be ready to be surprised. 
Be ready to be surprised. It doesn't depend on you. It began before you, and it will continue after you. So go in all confidence, knowing that God will be true to his word. God will spread the message, and he will grow his church. That is what Acts is all about. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We're thankful that the gospel message continues to go forth, and that it is not based on our effort or on our ingenuity or on how much we know, but it goes forth because you and your power are behind it. We pray even now that we would be filled with your spirit, the power of your spirit, so that we might also proclaim the word with all boldness and without hindrance. Oh God, we need your spirit and we need your help to do these things. Grant us a fresh breath of the spirit. Fill us with the spirit so that we might be able to proclaim the goodness of our Savior and the goodness of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.